All right, good morning. I hope you guys are well. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to continue through that, our journey here in this letter to the Corinthians. So last week uh, was a little bit of a review. It had been a couple weeks since I'd been here. So we kind of went back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, looked at Paul and his discussion of our ministry, right, that we are uh, ambassadors for Christ, that we're ministers of a new covenant, all these different ideas that are kind of three through five. And then, uh, if you recall, kind of talking about a topic that is foundational, I think, to Christianity and, and ministry, because chapter six is going to be about hardships in ministry. That's where it's going, right? And um, we all have different paths. We all have different uh, Christian journeys that we've been on, or journeys as unbelievers, and until we came to Christ, or if we have yet to come to Christ, whatever it might be. And so a lot of us, we can interpret gospel and, and how the gospel works and who we are in Christ in different ways. So it's important that we have a very accurate understanding of who we are in Christ. Um, and last week I talked about how uh, just kind of trying to get accustomed to Instagram and figure out what it is and stuff like that and my agedness. And just kind of, you know essentially just t subscribing to random Christian stuff so I could get all the half-nude people off my Instagram feed that it somehow comes with. So um, in that, I just discovered that, that many people, or maybe it was just luck of the draw, I couldn't say, uh, that, that many people believe, and I think with good hearts, it's not for me, I'm not measuring anyone's heart, they believe that the gospel is something like this, that God was really upset and that he gave a law in the Old Testament, and we break it all the time, which is a half-truth, right? God is upset, and he hates sin. Why does God hate sin? Because sin destroys what he loves, right, which is humans. So every, everything that we would look at in the Scripture where God says, this is bad, you shouldn't do it, or if we're concerned that I'm not using strong enough words where God says this is a moral, wicked wrong and you should not do it, that he says that because those things hurt his creation, right? So God's hatred for sin and his judgment upon sin is because it harms what he loves and he created. This is really important, right? Then when Christ came, we can look at it as, as Jesus was kind of like a down payment for sin, and that what happened was uh, the law didn't work out for 1,500 years. So God came up with like kind of plan B, and he sent Jesus. And then Jesus fulfilled the law and paid for sin, kind of paid for sin, and then ascended into heaven. And now he's saving people basically because he has to, because that's what the gospel does. And we're kind of like unwanted children. And then if we try hard enough, once we've received him, then somehow we gain his favor and he likes us more, and that gives us peace, and then one day we'll get into heaven. And, and that, 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 that gospel gets manifested in a lot of different ways, where simple things like somebody says, you should keep a short account, right? And then the idea that behind keep a short account is, you don't know when you might die, so you better make sure that all your sins are squared away with God, which cheapens what Jesus did, right? 
And when Paul here, in, in the end of chapter 5, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him might become the righteousness of God. I, I tell you, I could do this review in the intro every single week. That Christ, who knew no sin, intrinsically, experientially, did not know sin. It wasn't part of who he is. It's never been part of who he is, and it never will be part of who he is. It's, it's foreign to him. He only does right. He only loves. He only cares. And he only judges out of love, right? There will be justice in this world, because if there's love, there's justice. That's just the reality. If you love something, you, you execute justice to protect it and to uh, establish uh, safety, right? So in Christ, God judged him. And we, we talked about there's only two examples because I think personally, to me, they're very good examples. We're told that Jesus bore our sin in his own body. And I, so we, I don't know about you, but I'm, I, you know, I watched too much TV as a kid, so everything's kind of like this plain movie in my mind. And I just think, like, what would that be like that, that Christ became sin? And I don't claim to know everything that that means. But at the very least, it implies that the one who had no part of sin, didn't desire sin, is ultimately going to judge sin, or judge sin in Christ, and then once again uh, in the last day, that that same God, that the same lover of our soul, took on an incredible, intimate closeness with sin. So much so that the Bible describes it as he became sin. And, you know, think about that. When we see other people's sin, how do we typically respond? Different ways. It could be with grace. It could be with judgment. It could be with disgust. It could be like, oh, I don't want any part of that. So all of those responses that we have, Jesus stepped in none of those. He took it upon himself. Every rancid thought we've ever had, every hatred, every judgment, every gossip, Right? Every time we've ever despised another human being created in the image of Christ, Christ owned it in himself. And it also says that he took the ordinances written against us, right? Kind of the Santa Claus list of sin, if you will. He took that and it says he nailed it to his cross. So it's, it's important to know, when was this done? Well, this was done in the past to us. So he took the ordinances that were written against you and I before we lived, and everybody in the Old Testament looked forward to that. So everybody who for 15, 1,600 years who bulls and goats and, and uh, pigeons and so forth, those sacrifices, all pointed to one day when Christ would take their sin and nail it to his cross. That's why it's called eternal life, right? It has neither beginning nor end in Christ. That is, it's, it's endless life. It's in its very nature. It's intrinsically eternal. And Christ purchased that for us. And the, the result in the end of verse 15 there is, is so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Not just something that we merely have or we try to attain, but that we are in our, in our, in our person. Ephesians 1 says that we are currently, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are seated in heaven in Christ. So there, there's positionally in Christ you're already in heaven. It's a done deal. We're told that in Ephesians chapter 1 that we were foreordained. In Romans, he expands on that. Paul does, and he says, those that God foreknew, the people that God knew would choose him, received a destiny 
And that's to be into the image of Christ. Why is this so important? Because a lot of times, if we have this kind of view of the gospel that we described in the beginning, once we get saved, we're motivated by guilt and shame. We're motivated. We say, well, I should should do something at the church because if I don't, you know, Jesus is going to be mad. I mean, after all, he died for me. I kind of owe him some trash taking out, right? And we all know, we all know When you have a relationship that's based on debt, a relationship that's based on shame or guilt or debt, how does that relationship go? Very poorly, right? If you're kind of a more reserved person, eventually you'll retract from that relationship and you'll leave it. And we see that in many of our brethren that loved Christ but were were ministering from a place of, of guilt and shame. If you're more of, a, if you're more of an, an avid or a, a aggressive type person, not aggressive in a negative way, but you're more out there, you're more an alpha type of personality, then when you have a relationship where you're being guilted and shamed into something, it results in anger, right? I will not be taken advantage of anymore. This will not happen to me anymore. So the, the reality is Christ took our shame away, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? That Christ took our guilt away. So there's only one thing that's left, and that's relationship. It's love, right? So Paul lays out this incredible gospel for us. And he calls us, uh, uh, in chapter 5 also, that we're ambassadors of this specific gospel, that we're pleading with people to be reconciled to Christ. But it's never because we have to. It's never because Jesus is demanding it of us. He told us, you're my friends, you're not my slaves. Right? Now, we might associate ourselves, and rightly so, to say, I want to be the bondservant of Jesus Christ. The doulos is the Greek word that Paul uses very often. But the, the, the whole picture of the bondservant is from, or the bondslave, is from the, the, the Old Testament, which is a voluntary slavery that Israelites could enroll themselves in because they had gone bankrupt. They were having trouble with their fields or whatever it might be. And so you could sell yourself for six to seven years was the law, but if after the six to seven years you were to be released as as a as an indentured servant, and but you could choose to stay with that master. You could choose and say, this guy he took care of me and my family. I I just want to work for this guy. Like I'll contract him out my lands and I'll just I'll just work for this guy. It's fine. That's what a doulos is. But it was a never a demanded thing. It was never a thing where you had to do that. So Paul uses this reference over and over again, but it's, it's never because Jesus made him. It's because Jesus offered it to him. So it's, it's, it's that kind of understanding that, that God is not a bad dad who uses manipulation to get hugs, right? He's not a bad dad that, that uses wrath or, or twists emotional ties or guilt or shames to try to get their kids to do something. He's a good father that loves his children no matter what, has a plan for them, would like them to walk in it, has great things for them, and if they choose not to, it'll be bad, right? And we all know that, probably. We know what it's like to be a child of God and not walk in that and to do what we wanted to do, whether it was in our hearts and we were still doing what we should do on the outside or whether it was just pure rebellion all the way through. We know what that's like, and it's hellish because that's what hell is, right? Hell is the place where God is not, And so we know what it is to walk without God. And so as a good father, he doesn't come down to crush us or say, oh, you better. Didn't you know Jesus died for you? And you can't even go to church? That's garbage. This is supposed to be you and I 
We're supposed to come here because we want to. And we'll talk about what it means if we don't want to and how we can overcome that, how we can remedy that. But our whole thing, this whole thing that we're going to talk about with ministry is predicated on this gospel, that he's a good father. And he's not looking over your sin and just hoping you'll do better. He loves you and he likes you and he has, a, he has something for you to walk in. And, and if you walk in it, it will be the most satisfying, fulfilling, joyful, suffering, wonderful life you've ever experienced. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And that's what he's working through. So as we looked at last week in, cha- in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, as God, as God co-workers, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of my salvation, I helped you. Now again, just briefly, this is Isaiah 49. This is not the inception of Israel. This is not when Israel was born. This is when Israel is in decades of rebellion. And God sends Isaiah to them to call them back from that. So this is not a reference to, and Paul is not using it as a reference to salvation. He's writing to the Corinthians who are struggling with false teachers, struggling with good doctrine, struggling with just fleshliness. So they're like a regular church, basically, right? And he's writing back to them, and he's saying, today, don't receive God's grace. It's not that your salvation could become vain. He's saying, don't don't let the grace that he's given you for his kingdom's sake, because all of chapter 5 is about being an ambassador, for this incredible gospel. So he's saying don't receive this incredible gospel and then have the vanity or the vainness be and not walk in that, the gospel that you've received. Not be part of what God is building. Not be part of what God wants to do in your life. And so he quotes and shows to Corinth and now to us by proxy. He says, look, God was even telling Israel in their most rebellious of times, you can come back to me. This is still the time of my favor to you. This is still the time where I'll help you. And so he's telling Corinth and us now, he's saying, look, anybody, any believer who's stuck in their sin, today's the day of favor. Today's the day to find help. Today's the day to find victory, right? And we talked about last week, how's that come? The good heart, the good soil, right? It's, it's, it's the beautiful, good heart. And what it means is it's the honest heart. That's what beautiful means. It's the honest heart, the heart that's honest about where it's at. And then good means it's like good in nature. In other words, it's desiring or seeking good, not that it's intrinsically good. So how do we find victory? How do we walk in these things? That we're first honest, 100% honest with God. We're, we're, tempted to, we're tempted to hide things from God, which is laughable when we say it out loud. But we do it, right? We avoid topics in our prayers. We're like, could you do this and could you do this? And like pops into our mind, like, I should probably not be doing that, but we'll not cover that for now. Maybe we could look on, you know, we do all sorts of things. And yet, there's this outreach from God to us that Paul is exercising as just as it was in the Old Covenant by the grace of God to walk in exactly what he has for us and to have an incredible uh, experiential life with God walking through it. Because he reiterates it. He gives the quote there in verse 2, and then he reiterates it, and he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So we're going to jump in here in chapter three, because, or sorry, in verse three, because Paul is now going to talk about his personal ministry. He's going to address, and, and this is kind of peppered through the, the, the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, is peppered through that, and it's peppered through 2 Corinthians. Remember, there are false teachers, and there are people that are essentially taking issue with what Paul is saying, right? They're making accusations. They say things like, uh, you know, Paul, he's weak in person, 
Um, and he's not, very, he doesn't, he's not a very great speaker. He's pretty weak in person, but his letters are incredibly powerful. Uh, they make also sorts of accusations that he's not a real apostle. All these different things. Because you have certain teachers that are in Corinth that are called Judaizers, right? I know this is review, but just roll with me. They're Judaizers. And what that means is they're trying to bring Jewishness into the church. And the way they're doing that is they're saying Jesus is a pretty solid payment for sin, but you also have to keep these certain laws, right? Legalism, or the idea that I follow a law and that makes me right with God, that has been for the entirety of Christianity. It just changes shades. It changes colors. You know, we, not very many of us would probably say, there is a movement in Christianity, definitely, where they say, they say oh, you have to keep the Sabbath and you should be a vegetarian, and they make rules like that. And it's just a misunderstanding of the role of the law and what it had for us. And that's fine. But, but, but for the most part, in Christianity, it's kind of morphed for us. Instead of that we're just righteous because of Jesus, it comes different, in different ways. It can be, you have to be baptized, right? Because everybody knows that Jesus' blood is not enough. It's not enough. You also need to get dunked. I mean, that's how crazy our, our thoughts are, Right? That we have this incredible scripture that shows us God's grace and his love and his kindness. And we're just like, uh, I feel like if we got dunked in water, that would kind of solidify it. And you're like, really? That's the best we can come up with? Shouldn't it be like be martyred or something? That's at least what the Muslim faith says. I mean, just dunked in water. Or it's something like this. You know what? You need to receive Jesus. But realistically, you have to use the King James Bible after that. Because everybody knows a translation that took place in 1611 with 72 translators could never be replaced. It could, there could be no more accurate translation, even though we've discovered hundreds of other texts. And all the, no, it's got to be the King James 1611 version. But if, if you're just kind of a worldly Christian, then you can use the new King James. Really? That, really? Considering that most Christians didn't have a Bible to the 1800s? Right? We, we tend to think, we, we always think in, in our era, right? We always think in our era. Because for most of us, we've always had a Bible. Some of us might have two, right? That's, not, that hasn't, that's been since 200 years ago. That, and, and, and you think about it, the Gutenberg Press was 1436. And what language did they print the Bible in first from the Gutenberg Press? The name might give it away. German. Yeah, German. So English-speaking Christians still didn't really have a mass-produced Bible. And it wasn't until essentially in England and in the U.S. where Bible societies started getting together and going, we need to get one of these bad boys in everybody's hand. Until then, you were pretty lucky if your church had one. And now we're going to say, unless you're using the 1611, you're somehow, you know, subpar. God's grace is weak, if that's the case. It's weak. And his salvation is poultry but he's mighty he's incredible and there's a by a simple exercising of faith and an acknowledgement in what Christ did at Calvary we got saved and now we get to pass that on to other people and we have this incredible gospel to share and so now in our ministry how we minister is going to be determined by how we feel about who God is so Paul, in describing his ministry and trying to come back to these people who are being bombarded with terrible Bible teaching, or terrible doctrine, I should say, 
He says there in verse 3, he says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we committed, or excuse me, commend ourselves in every way in great endurance in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good reports, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten, uh, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. So Paul makes this appeal, and he's going to talk about the difficulty of his ministry. Now, I... I Forgive me for being repetitive, but I hope you see why how we see ourselves and how we see God is really important for how we minister, right? Because if we see ourselves as these debtor slaves that will receive a whipping if we don't do what we're supposed to do, it's going to dramatically change how we minister. We're going to minister frantically. We're going to minister with anxiety. We're going to minister with vehemence, demanding results. We're going to try to manipulate people into getting what we want so we can have closure about our salvation. There's all sorts of ways that it's going to manifest in that. When we minister from a place of being the child of a good father who loves us and paid for us, all of a sudden we're out and we're doing these things because we know God and we want other people to know God. When you have something good in your life, whatever it might be, um, you know, I remember when I lived in Astoria, and Sahara Pizza got there. Yeah. I apologize if you're a fan of Fatanos for you now and then. But I remember when Sahara got there. I remember we went to this place. It used to be on the corner. They moved later on. And they had a lunch special. And so I thought, I'll stop by and get this lunch special. And it was, remember when you get lunch for like seven bucks? Yeah. Like last week. But no, see, and I remember having this pizza. And I was like, this is incredible pizza. It was like super cheesy. The sauce was kind of sweet, but yet tangy. It was like a Christmas miracle in a slice of pizza, right? And so that day I went home and I told Tam, I went to this pizza place. It was really good. We should get that for dinner, even though I had it for lunch, right? And then I went to Coastline because I worked there and I was like, hey, told Michael Sivkoff, dude, I went to this new pizza place. It's really good, right? When I was in the pizza place, the guy didn't like pull me aside and say, hey, you're having our pizza, and it's really good. So you need to go tell people about it. And if you don't, you're letting us down, right? Like, like some sort of bad YouTuber. Make sure you smash that like and subscribe button or something, right? <laughs> right? When you love something, you just tell people about it. And there's no guilt or shame about it. The only guilt or shame is like, sorry, I'm talking about this so much, but this is incredible pizza, right? That's, that's the guilt and shame that you experience. 
which is obviously not real. And so the, the, the reality is Paul is expressing a relationship that's possible with Jesus that could motivate us from a place not of guilt or shame or have to because that's not real. That's man-made. And take us instead to a place where we're developing something with Jesus that's so mighty that then we have this, this idea about ministry that we're willing to walk in. And we'll talk about how we get there. The first thing that Paul does, and this is very applicable to to a ministry that's going to differ based on how we see God. He says, we don't put a stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. This is huge. In other words, he says, because he's talking to Corinth, he's talking about his ministry to them there. He started that church. He was there for 18 months. And he says to them, he says, look. We don't do anything that could cause you to trip over it. And these are not sin issues, okay? He's not talking about issues that are sin. He's talking about peripheral issues, things that we could do that can cause other people to trip up in their walk with Jesus. And there's a long list of those type of things. It can be alcohol, right? If you have a beer with your pizza, God bless you, like whatever. You know, that's, that's, that's between you and the Lord. If you are going to have recovering alcoholics over to your house for dinner, you probably don't want to sit a picture in front of them, do you? And then look, have a big smile on your face as you throw back your, you know, Michelob or whatever it is that you drink, right? Or sorry, it's probably craft now. It's probably like something like Firestone or something. But you know, so it's, you know, if you do that, you could really hurt someone, right? And so we don't do stuff like that. We curb our rights so that other people can see Jesus. And this is a really important idea about the gospel. You know, a lot of times people have been asked in the past, how come we don't have an American flag on the stage? Or how come we don't really talk about politics that much? And I'll tell you why. Because not everyone is a Democrat or a Republican. Right? So if I stand up here and I make a political stand... The country shows that I'm alienating about 50% of it, right? And the reality is, and, and you know, hot take here, the United States is not going into the millennial kingdom as the United States. This is a temporal, earthly kingdom. We love it, I hope. We have a great nation. Amen. And we live a good life. Mm-hmm. But it's not our hope. It's not our message. We don't live and die by what happens to the U.S. So it's great if we can talk about things. If you have concerns about what's happening in the country, it's good and it's healthy to dialogue about those things. But just to make statements on social media or just to to just post, this guy's an idiot, that does not glorify God. It puts a stumbling block. What if I like that guy? What if I think that that gal has her stuff together and she really understands the political spectrum and you're outreaching to me and then you say, this person is an idiot, right? Because we rarely say, I have studied and observed and considered the argument that this big person makes and I disagree with it. We don't say that. That's hard to type out on a phone, (laughs) right? It's much easier to say, this guy's an idiot. Look at these morons, right? Which, first of all, Jesus would condemn, Right? That's, there, there's never a passage in Scripture where Paul or Jesus or James or Peter says, make sure you smack talk your leaders. So in the United States of America, we have the right to smack talk our leaders. Right? It's called free speech. And we're thankful for that right. 
But we have to decide, do you want to exercise that right and alienate people that will never listen to you about Jesus again? Is that worth it to you? Is it worth it to me? Or do instead, do I look at the kingdom of heaven as the most valuable thing that there is? And every word that comes out of my mouth, I consider and I say, will this bring people to Jesus? Will this help them to see him? Now, if you want to talk about something like abortion and you want to say, I vote against abortion, if you do, and you say something like, because at the end of the day, I believe those are people and I want to protect them because I believe that, that God loves every embryo that's going to grow up and has attached his soul to that. and God bless you in that. But as soon as you move from saying something along those lines that has to do with God loving human beings and wanting to protect them, and you move into, you're an idiot. We've moved from loving human beings to taunting and and shrinking the kingdom of God and limiting who, who we can influence. I'm not saying jump on social media and say, I think everything you say is really great that's contrary to the gospel. I'm not saying that. But Paul, he makes this statement here. He says, because I love Christ so much and because I'm an ambassador for Christ to be reconciled to God through Christ, I want to make sure that I don't do anything that's going to cause people to stumble and to discredit my ministry. You guys know me because my favorite example, rudeness. Let's not be rude to people. Don't be rude to people at the bank. Don't be rude to people that screw up your order. It's it's literally like the spirit of Antichrist. It's literally like, I will now speak ill to you because you have wronged me in this monetary engagement that ultimately will just be burnt up and has nothing to do with anything, has no basis on eternity, but I don't like it and it's inconvenient. And so now I will take it out on you because I am a superior human being that has not made this mistake lately. (laughs) Right? That's what ruinous is. When we're rude to people, if you go to the bank and they screw up your deposit or whatever they do, and then you're like, really? Really? You couldn't do some math? You couldn't work that out? You didn't do addition and you go on or you say something? Or sometimes we just can't help ourselves with rudeness. And like something will happen and it'll be over. You ever done that? I've done this. It'll be over. It's dealt with. And you're just kind of like, well, I really didn't like that. Just kind of say that again. You know, I really didn't like that. I don't think you should have done that. Like, well, I thought we dealt with this, but we just keep pushing. And then if you turn around and go, do you want to come to my church and hear about the forgiveness of Jesus? <laughs> How he's so kind and he calls his followers to be kind also? That's ridiculous. So when somebody screws something up, like we do, we're gracious. We're kind to them. Paul makes the argument in, in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, what is it, 6 or 7. He says, look, if someone in the body wrongs you, why are you suing them? Just take the wrong. I mean, this is, this is some radical teaching stuff. But Paul's saying, we make it our goal to not do anything that could jeopardize our ability to show people Jesus. And you, and you know why you do that? You don't do that out of guilt. You do that out of love. And the only way that we're going to be able to walk in that is if we love Christ. And the only way we're going to love Christ is if we know Christ. And the only way we're going to know Christ is if we seek him and we have that honest heart and allow him to work in our hearts. 
It all boils down to this relationship. We can minister like crazy, right? We can do tons of good stuff. But to have a wide open door for the kingdom and all the time and for our personal growth, it's going to be through our relationship and our understanding of who Jesus is. After that, he says this, verse 4, rather, so instead of putting stumbling blocks, instead of uh, doing things that will discredit our ministry, rather, as, uh, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So he, this word servants, it's not doulos, it's actually diakonos, and that's the word like, for example, um, in 1 Timothy 3, when he talks about a deacon should be like this, right? Or in uh, Romans 16, where he says, Phoebe, uh, the deacon or the servant you know, of God, diakonos. It's always that, uh, this, this, this is the word that he's using. So he's literally just saying, if we're going to be servants to God, if you're going to serve God, he doesn't say if you're going to be saved, because that came by faith in Christ. He says, if you want to serve God, instead of doing things that are going to bring shame or going to bring contempt to the name of Christ, which is us sinning, instead there's a different life to be had. And he says, rather, we commend ourselves in every way. The word commend here, it literally means we find these things that he's going to talk about in a second. We find these things acceptable and we willingly, willingly enter them. Does that make sense? That's what it means when he says we commend ourselves to these things. We find them acceptable and we willingly enter them. And this is what he gives. Or then he gives a, I should, I'm sorry, back up. He says, and we do this in great endurance. This is translated uh, steadfastness. It's sometimes translated patience. It's uh, hypomony or however you pronounce your Greek. It's, the, uh, it's hypomony and it's to remain under pressure. It's two words, to remain under pressure. That's what it means. Hypo, where we get like a word like hypoglycemic, low blood sugar, or hypotensive, low blood pressure, right? It's hypomony, to stay underneath weight is what it means. So he says we do this, and it's translated steadfastness. He says that's how we go through these things. So we commend ourselves, but we commend ourselves through steadfastness. Now, how does steadfastness work, right? Because you can't, I guess you could just talk about, said, uh, label it and then move on. But a lot of us, myself included, we had to figure out how does this work. So when something occurs in your life or there's a perspective of something or a possibility of something that could occur in your life, you instantly have feelings, right? We love feelings. We instantly have feelings. And if it's something you know, that could be bad about our health, about money, about our kids, things that are precious to us, that brings feelings, doesn't it? If something that we love or we need, perceive as need, or comes under threat, we have bad feelings, right? Anxiety, anger, depression, rage, you know, all these different spectrums of just, what? How could this be? What steadfastness is, is not denying that you have feelings, which is, I think, what many of us do, including myself. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right? That is... I'm having all the feels, but I'm pretending I don't because somehow they'll just go away, which is not real. Right? That's not how real life works. So when we have all the feels about something negative that could occur or will occur in our lives, we don't ignore the feelings. We don't pretend we don't have the feelings, but steadfastness is staying in a position and we work through the feelings. First, acknowledging, yeah, I'm feeling this right now. And then once I acknowledge that, I have some options. Once I realize the possibilities in my life, I'm experiencing the feelings about those possi- I'm experiencing feelings about those possibilities, I have options. 
Option number one, which I think in general by most humans is, is opted for, including myself, is that we self-medicate. We say, well, I'll take a nap because clearly that's going to fix everything. Although I will say sleep is an incredible aid to dealing with stress. But we'd say, I'll take a nap. We say, I'll get some ice cream. We say, I'm going to watch Netflix. I can binge this for a few hours. I, we say, I'll go have a drink. We say, I'll go buy some weed. We say, I'll do it. We, we do different things uh, that, we, that we try to enter into that do nothing to solve the issue, nor deal with the experience of our feelings, but they suppress it or set it to the side. right? Because we do those things because they do actually comfort us. right? Otherwise, we wouldn't do them. But the problem is, on the other side of a gallon of ice cream and eight hours of Netflix is hypoglycemia, right? And then suicidal tendencies, because you're like, what did I just do with my life? But you know what I'm saying? Like, it comes to this place where you experienced, you experienced stress relief because you were chuckling at a show that you like, or you were watching a tragedy, and they're like, their life sucks worse than mine, or whatever it might be. You know, you went through that, and you, you found comfort in that. But on the other side is more emptiness. And so steadfastness is not running to self-medication. It's not denying the feelings that I'm experiencing. It's considering them and giving them to Christ, which is a very Christian thing to say. What does that mean? It means that I take a moment, whether I want to be inside or outside. I lay my phone aside. I lay my laptop aside. I lay my uh, screen whatever pod aside. I lay that aside, and I go out with a paper Bible. James, you're being legalistic. Uh, bring your phone, whatever. I highly recommend a paper Bible. You know why? It doesn't ding, right? It doesn't get texts. It doesn't distract you. You're not like, oh, I'm going to read a little bit. What's going on on the Instagrams? Look at that, a new basket, you know, whatever, you know. It doesn't do that. It's just there. So there's nothing holier about a paper Bible, but it has a whole lot less distraction. And, you, you know, if it's a nice day, you go outside, you want to stay inside, whatever. But you, 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 you say, here I am, Lord. You know, these are not exact words. These are suggestions. You voice it in your own way. But all you're there to do is tell the Lord what you're going through. He literally told us to do that. That's like what half of David's psalms are about. You're like, wow, if we only had David's psalms, Christianity would seem pretty depressing. Right? Because like every psalm is like, Lord, reveal yourself lest I sleep the sleep of death. You're like, dude, if my daughter said that to me, I'd be like, what? But that's where he's at. Right? That's what he, he's just pouring his heart out. And what was David called by God as a murderer? And maybe, maybe, at the very least, he took a woman to himself and didn't ask her permission. What does that make him before God? Well, according to God, it makes him a guy after his own heart that he could live such a rancid life in some ways. A life that none of us would tolerate. A person we'd never vote for as king. And yet God says, he's a man after my heart. Why? Because he poured his heart out to the Lord. And he repented. When he was called upon to repent. When he was called upon to turn back to God. It wasn't that he let a great... This, dude's an, he, this guy has some anger issues. Remember when uh, Abigail's husband was his name? I can't remember his name. It means fool, whatever his name is. Nabal? Nabob? If you're looking for kids' names. But uh, remember, he says, he sends some messengers to him, and he's like, I'm not going to help David because Solomon's just going to punk him in the end. That's, again, the not King James Version. But that's, that's basically what he says to him, right? 
And David said, he stands up and he goes, we're going to go kill everyone who pees against the wall. You're like, okay. Interesting plan, right? This guy rejected his help, and David says, we're going to kill every male in his family. That's David. David sees a hot girl on a roof, and he's like, bring that woman to me. Sends her son off to be executed, or her, her, her husband off to be executed, and other men die with him also. That's David. I'm not advocating for that lifestyle. I'm not saying that's something we should turn towards. What I'm saying is, evidently, you can be a pretty sorely person, and God will accept you by grace. And so we're, we're called as individuals, we're going to be steadfast in something. We're no, we don't deny our feelings, right? We, we, we give them to God. We confess them. We say, here, I'm, this is how I'm feeling about this. This is what your word says. Your word says that you'll work everything together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. But I'm going to be honest right now because I cannot see anything that good that could come from this. And I need your presence and I need your comfort. And then you break out your Bible that doesn't ding, right? And, you, and it doesn't have little things that come up on the screen either. And you just sit down and, and you, you search for him. You say, Lord, I, I'd love to hear from you. Lord, I, what does your word say? How can you comfort me? And if you're in a place where you're like, I try to read the Bible, but it's really big and there's no pictures. And I have a hard time with it. And I don't know how many times, especially as a young man, um, that I would read and I would get done with a chapter or two and then be like, I don't even know what I read. I know I read that Jesus did some stuff and it seemed good, but I don't really know how to get anything out of this. I don't know really how to go there. How, to, how, to, how does this apply to me? How does this work out in my life? So you find someone. Say, hey, could you help me understand this? Could you help me walk through this? It's, it's called discipleship. It's been something that's been, I don't mean this in like some weird, angry way, but it's literally been happening for 2,000 years until recently. Where, where church has become more of this thing where I kind of come on Sunday and then I just roll out. And there's no, there's no interaction. There's no time that I, that I don't realize that when I come to church, I'm actually walking into a place where someone through the Holy Spirit could change my life for the better forever with one word. And this doesn't have to be behind the podium. Any of you guys. And, the, and, and the, the flip side of that coin is that through the Holy Spirit and through a relationship with Jesus, that you could be someone that walks in here every single Sunday and makes eternal difference in somebody else's life for the better. That you could share something with them that meets them right where they're at to comfort them, to encourage them, to challenge them. That's what this is supposed to be. This was never designed to be that some dude just stands up and talks for too long and then we leave, Right? <laughs> It was always designed to be something where we get to have interaction and we get to give and be given to, not because we're guilted into it, because that's, that's not a good contribution. Because God loves us and we just want to let other people know that God loves them too. Because God's been kind to us our whole lives and we just want to let other people know like, hey, God could be kind to you too. Because we've had tragedy in our lives and we can tell other people, hey, you know what? It took me a decade, two, three, four decades to get over this, but God got victory in my life. And he can give you that victory too, maybe in a couple less decades because of what I can share with you. That you all as an individual share that same power, that same right. First, you know, John 1 says that we have the right to be called the, child of, the children of God. That God's given you that. He's imbued you with that. That you all have different gifts. You have different callings, different ways that you look at things. You know, and we're not all going to say the same thing or do the same thing or look at things the same way. That's not... 
That's not what Christianity is supposed to be, that you as an individual, as a Jesus follower, as a Jesus lover, because he's loved you, that you could come to a place, any place, a small group, a church, uh, a baseball game, it doesn't matter, and have the Holy Spirit inside of you and see someone and recognize their need and be able just to say something simple to them. That's what we're called to. That is not a subpar, unfulfilling life. It's not a more fulfilling life to reserve ourselves, right? If we're going to be steadfast, we cannot just go self-medicate. We have to go seek the Lord. And it's a joke. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's a joke when, we, when, when, when hard times hit and we go, Lord, please do something. And then we eject to the Netflix. And then we come to church the next day and people go, well, did you pray about it? And we go, yeah, but he didn't answer. Yeah, no wonder. There's not a lot of Jesus in the office. All funny, although it may be. Right? There's not a lot of Jesus in Parks and Rec, funny though it may be. So we can't be surprised when we call out to God and then we seek things of the world that we didn't get answers. As if like somehow it's like some sort of Gilligan's Island thing and it's just going to float up. No, we place ourselves by taking time away from the things that grab our attention to be available to hear from God. And that's how we grow. We'll go on. So from there he says, huh, my page turned. From there he says, he's going to give the list of the hardships. So in steadfastness, he says in troubles, which is, it's like the stressful situations. Troubles and distresses are kind of, they're synonyms. In troubles, in hardships, and distresses. So it's the, the, the word uh, uh, troubles literally translates to distresses. Hardships is interesting. It can be translated, uh, it's translated in the Bible a few different ways. One way is pressure, uh, uh, and the other way is, excuse me, um, necessity. So uh, the idea of a um, hardship is when we experience a necessity that we need something, a genuine need in our life. Not Ferraris, Right? Not the best, whatever, but a genuine need in our life, whether it's comfort or physical provision or whatever it might be. So Paul says we commended ourselves to these things. In other words, we accepted them when they came and we walked willingly into them. Does that make sense? Guilt doesn't do that. Only love does that. So he, he says that when they experience those things, and these are kind of generic troubles, hardships, and distresses. But now he's going to, in verse 5, he's going to be more specific. And this all happened, well, this happened in many places, but the three of these definitely happened in Philippi, in beatings, in imprisonment, and riots. Who would you take a beating for? And why would you take it? We might take a beating for guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are incredibly powerful and incredibly destructive, but they're incredibly powerful. But who would you gladly go take a beating for? Because guilt and shame will never cause you to gladly take a beating. And when you read about the beatings that Paul took and other, some of the other apostles and some of the other extra biblical literature we have about the church fathers and, and mothers for that reason, for that matter, when you read about those people, they took their beatings gladly. When you read about Peter and John when they went before the Sanhedrin and they were beaten, it says they went out uh, rejoicing because they were found worthy to be beaten for the name of Christ. Does guilt and shame do that? How, if, if, if we're seeing our ministry because we better do it or else God's going to be mad at us, will that generate that? No, it'll generate anger. 
it'll generate a weird system, actually, where we make God a debtor. And we'll say something like this. I've been faithful to you, and you let me get beat? Forget you then. If this is your reward for faithfulness, forget you then. That's where guilt and shame gets us. But you know where love gets us? You're so good to me, God. That hurt, but I'm so glad that I got to publicly proclaim your name and all it cost me was some bruises or a limb. It's a huge difference, isn't it? Huge difference. So he says, we commended ourselves to beatings and to imprisonment. You know, it's a wise question. Is what I am living for today worth dying for? Whatever I'm devoting my life to, whatever that might be, is it worth dying for? And if the answer is no, then we should ask ourselves some questions. Why am I living that life? And I'm not saying this, don't translate into, if I go watch Netflix, I'm not living for Christ. That's not the message here. God bless you. Watch Netflix. I don't care, right? The message is, what is the priority of your life? Because if it's temporal, if it's self-satisfaction, if it's money, if it's status, if it's being appreciated, if it's any of those things, that's going to end at the moment of death. And your soul will live on without those things in the, in the same way. But if we're looking to our Savior, if we're taking those, those times, when I say take your paper Bible and go outside, don't attach something to that. Don't make some crazy application like, I'm going to go fast and pray for 72 hours out in the wilderness. Dude, take five minutes and just say, here I am. Lord, I need more of you. And what you'll find is the more that you go and find him, the more that you experience him, all of a sudden, five minutes, it's not enough anymore. And it's not enough because you went, oh, man, Jesus probably wants more. Okay, here I am reading your Bible. You're welcome. Right? That's where legalism, that's where guilt and shame gets us. But when you're with somebody you love, all of a sudden, five minutes isn't enough, is it? And you come back and you're like, oh, I'm going to spend 10. And there's no guilt over 10, right? And then you don't express that to others. The other thing that legalisms, and, and if we look at uh, God as a bad dad, the other thing he does, somebody else says, man, yeah, my, my morning time's like about five minutes, a couple times a week, and we're like, no, really? <laughs> Jesus died for you, and you spend 10 minutes a week with him. Hmm, okay. <laughs> I spend an hour, and I fast the whole hour. <laughs> right? We will measure other people by the thing that we feel like gives us righteousness. It's crazy. We're so messed up, but God is so gracious. So when I find that I'm not willing to take a beating for Jesus, the problem isn't Jesus. The problem is I don't know him for who he is because how could human beings for 2,000 years run to the stake to be burned, gladly taking, being stoned to death, lose limbs, be whipped, be hooked up to car batteries and generators in modern times. How is this happening? Are these people just unique? They're just hardcore? They're just different than us? No, they're people that know Christ. That's the only difference. They've allowed Christ to make a huge difference in their life. And so they wanted to do it. It was worth it to them. They were never guilted into it. And if they were, it was probably a pretty disappointing experience. But God still loves them. There's no, still no condemnation for them. And there's no condemnation for you or me. If our relationship today is based on guilt and shame before Jesus, he's not condemning you for that. Because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. 
But he has way more for you than condemnation. Way more for you than, than thinking that you're under guilt and shame. He has life and love and care. And it's just us to, up, up to us to make ourselves available for that. He gives, so he says there, imprisonments, riots. Then he talks about things not necessarily that happened to him, but things that he was involved in. He went into them. Hard work. You can hard work for guilt and, guilt and shame, and that'll have a bad fruit. You can hard work for love, and it'll create a satisfying, amazing relationship, right? Sleepless nights and hunger. You can become, if you, if you go hungry over guilt and shame because you feel like you should, and you think that's kind of weird. Hey, I had a roommate. I had a roommate years ago, and I love this guy. This guy labored for Christ. Every night, well, for, for a while, he'd, every meal, he'd, he ate just rice and beans because he, wanted, he, he felt like it was kind of like a Gnostic kind of a deal where it was like, I don't want to give my flesh any pleasure. And you know why he did that? Because he loved Christ. And he thought that that's how Christ worked, that he was essentially, he loved him, he's so thankful for his salvation, but he owed him so much. And so how could he eat steak or stop at McDonald's if he owed Christ so much? Right? He would, he, we had a prayer meeting Tuesday nights. Every night he would pray over our entire prayer list at his bed. And we had wood floors and he wouldn't use a pad on purpose because he thought, you know what, if the Lord suffered for me, surely I can suffer a little bit of knee pain for the sake of praying for these people. That's where it goes. That's narcissism. It's part of the idea that matter is evil and all flesh is evil and so therefore I have to punish myself. So when he says a hungry night, people can do that because they feel guilt and shame. But there's no good in that. There's no joy in that. There's no peace in that. There's no peace in, in flaying our own backs to try to impress Jesus. And he's never asked us to do that. Instead, he said, why don't you come to me if you're weary? Why don't you hang out with me if you're carrying heavy burdens? Why don't you cast your cares on me because I care for you? That's always been the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus has never been, even when he says, take up your cross and follow me, the idea there is, is, hey, be willing to give up your life for me. He doesn't say torture yourself to be worthy of me. He says, be, be ready to give away everything that you're going to lose in the end anyway. That's what taking up your cross is. And I know we love the graphic. We're like, the cross is so bloody. And that's true. But we don't, we're not told that for guilt and shame. We're, we're told that for love to see what he did for us, to see how he cares for us, to breed security and peace and joy, not to breed debt and guilt and shame. Religion just creeps in at so many places, and it alters how we look at Jesus. And we end up just in this weird Christian rat race, just trying to oppress him enough so that I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Spend time with him and make yourself available to him to heal you. And then walk with him. That's your only call. Remember when the, 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 uh, in John chapter 6, the people come to him and Jesus, they're following him. And he says, stop following me for the bread that perishes, right? They're just following him around because he keeps feeding them food, which was hard to get in the first century, let's be honest. So if there's some dude who's willing to just wander around and give you free food three times a day, that's an incredible deal in the first century. And he says, you guys got to stop following me for this. And he says, instead, stop following me for the bread that perishes, but instead for the bread that leads to the eternal life. And they, this is, they say, what should we do? What are the works that we can do to get this eternal life? And he replies, because they say it in plural. In Greek, it's plural. What are the works that we can work, that we can strive at? to get this eternal life. 
And Jesus says, this is the work. So they ask plurally, what are the works? Jesus' reply is, this is the singular work to have the bread that endures to eternal life and is to believe on him who he has sent. That's the work. That's the ministry. First and foremost, to ask myself, why do I find God at times or all the time disinteresting, not interesting? Why do I find that I don't want to have a relationship with him? Why do I find that almost anything is better than sitting down and reading the Bible? Why do I find that all these things draw from my attention? And there's many answers to that that we don't have time. It's our old nature, habitual habits that we've created uh, growing up or in our adulthood, all these different things. But those are all things we can bring to Christ and just be honest about. I need change. I value X, Y, or Z significantly more than I value you. It's never met with condemnation. It's never met with judgment. It is from people, but it's not from Jesus. And to come forward with that and then experience what we were designed for. See, this is, <laughs> this is another kind of really foundational idea here. You're designed to be loved by God. Think about that. You are not designed to be judged by God. You are not designed to be guilted and shamed by God. You are not designed to be a burden to God. You were designed to be a recipient of his unconditional divine love at all times. And then from that position of receiving, to be able to move forward and dialogue with the divine. That's what you were designed for. And it's only religion that creeps in and says, no, actually, God's just this kind of ticked off old man. And he's kind of a bad dad that likes to use manipulation and shame to get what he wants. It's wicked. It's a wicked doctrine. It's a satanic doctrine. Because God is gracious. And he's got great things for us. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever cries out for the forgiveness that Christ purchased has it. And has it forever. And that's what he's called us to. And that's what will cause us to, to walk through these things. In verse, he says this. He says, in purity and understanding, patience and kindness... So if we look at this, so impurity, it's not, sometimes if you say purity, we either think of like uh, the, the book, you know, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, or we think of like the Pope or something, some sort of weird religious idea. The idea here is, is it is purity in that we're not looking to other things, but it's, it's a, a pure or a, a singular vision. So the way that they walk through those is a singular vision. It's a purity It's looking at Jesus. It's not just, I'm so holy, and so therefore these things don't affect me. That's not really a real life. I don't even think that's a real dynamic in Christianity. It's more the idea that I'm looking at Christ, so when things come that do affect me, in purity I walk through them. In other words, I'm purely looking at Christ. He says that's how we go through those difficulties. He goes on there in understanding. Gnosko, this is the idea of uh, understanding by um, experience. So he says that we walk through these things and we're able to do these things because we, experience, we have experience with God. He goes on from there and he, and he says, in kindness, we went through, we commended, our, these, uh, we commended ourselves to these things and it, it happened through kindness. Both God's kindness to us and then through that, that we walk through those things when we're commended to them in kindness towards others. He goes on from there and he says, in truthful, or I'm sorry, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. So these are ways through the power of the Spirit to, to walk through those. 
to allow the Spirit to work in us. In Romans chapter 5, we're told that as we essentially endure hardship, as we allow God to work in our lives, the Holy Spirit in us is shedding God's love in our hearts. That there is a supernatural infusion from God that is given to us. That where we lack strength, where we lack love, that God's Spirit is bearing fruit out of us, right? But how does that happen? We just have to be willing. How, you know, there again, the good soil is the honest and the beautiful. I should say in the good. It's the, it's the honest and it's the good nature. It, it, it seeks good. So that's how we walk through these things, right? There are no super Christians. There are no Christians that are immune to difficulty, there are only Christians that commend themselves to it with the power and the tools that God gives them to do it. And so it's just up to us to say, will I trust God for the life that he says he has for me? Or I will continue to try to get through life in my own way, which is, it's miserable. So he goes on there and he says, in truthful speech and the power of God, I, you know, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm not gonna go through all these. In truthful speech, and in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, uh, this is not a definitive you know, thing on God's armor or anything like that. But the idea is to uh, have protection and have an offense on all sides. You know, If you go back and you look at uh, the, the sword uh, of the Spirit, right, in there in Galatians chapter 6, it's interesting because the sword of the Spirit, uh, which is the Word of God, um, the Bible says, that the, where it says the Word of God, a lot of times, most of the time, um, that is the Greek word logos or logos, which would be expression of a thought, right? But when it talks about the sword of the spirit, the word of God as our sword, it's rhema, which is a, it's not logos, it's rhema. And a rhema word is used in the Bible as to the idea of an appropriate word and an appropriate time. So the sword of the spirit is God ministering to you and also applying appropriately God's word in the right places. And how are we going to do that if we're crying out to him for two seconds and then we decide to go watch Netflix? We're literally just throwing our sword on the ground. So again, is it religion? Is it righteousness to go grab your paper Bible and run outside? No. It's life and relationship. And so it's just up to us. Which are we going to choose? But let's be honest. If we choose self-medication, let's not come to church and blame God or others. All right? Let's just be honest. Why are you down? Well, I had an opportunity to be encouraged, but honestly, I chose my own way. And so now I'm down. Will you pray for me? Isn't, that would be awesome honesty. Can you imagine having that kind of honesty with people? Can you imagine the freedom in that? You know why honesty is so free and so, and so incredible once we're finally honest with God and with each other? Because you can only receive love if you're honest. You know why? Because when you're dishonest, you know intrinsically that they don't love you. They love the persona that you've put forward. And that is the loneliest place in the world to be because you know and you're alone in it and you're the only person that knows it and you feel it to the hilt. You feel like these people don't really love me. If they really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. They love this persona. They, put, they love the, the godly James, the James that really doesn't exist. Only the broken James exists. So we have to be if we're going to receive love from God and others and walk in all this, it's got to be honest. I'm not saying like walk in and be like, hey, church, I had a radical porn thing last night. I'm not saying do that. But I am saying you could come to someone you trust 
Not for accountability's sake, so you can be like, well, I'm telling myself. But so you can just be like, man, I messed up. I messed up. I sinned. And I was trying to find satisfaction and comfort in, in, in a forbidden place. And I need healing. Right? That's what we're here for. To be healed and to heal. To be blessed and to bless. To love and be loved. That's why we're here. And, and any other reason is stupid. <laughs> Honestly. It's, it's, it's extra. Because that's the place that we live. This is the place that we are. A place of healing. A place of care. A place of grace. And a place of growth. Right? And it's going to come from that relationship with God. <clears throat> I know we're going to finish here in a second, but there's food, so you have to stay. He lastly, he says this, and this might be harder for us to deal with. He says, through glory and dishonor, literally doxa, good opinion. He says, we commended ourselves that there were times where people had good opinions of us and they dishonored us. They had bad opinions of us. That's okay. Because in the end, there's one opinion that matters. And it's Christ. Right? It's Christ. And I don't say that so we can be rude to people and tell people off and be like, well, only Christ matters what he thinks of me. It's so that we can realize that like, you're going to try your hardest in life and you're going to try to help people, and you might mess it up. You probably will. I do. We all do. But you're going to try your hardest, and people are going to hate you for it. And that's okay. Because we live in a broken world, and people will misunderstand you, and they'll, they'll think that you're malicious when you're not. They'll think all sorts of things. And that's okay. You commend yourself to it. You walk into it, and you be willing for it. Because the Lord, is your, he's your judge. And he's your, your protector, your provider. I know it's hard. We all want to be liked. From bad report and good report. And this is what Paul experienced, right? Some people were like, Paul's trash. And some people were like, Paul's great. People are going to be upset with you. That's okay. He says, then he goes on to some different things. We're genuine, yet we're regarded as imposters. They were, they were apostles, right? They were apostles, and they went to these churches, and people called them imposters. So you can know that you can have a very genuine love for Christ. Not a perfect one. Nobody has a perfect one, but a genuine one. And people will look at you and say, you're an imposter. You don't belong here. You're a liar. You're not really representing who Jesus is. He goes on from there and he says, we're known and yet regarded as unknown. And the idea here is that we're known by God and yet we're regarded by people as being nobodies. We're dying and yet we live on, Right? Paul was basically stoned to death, and then he gets up and he lives on. In other words, we're laying down our lives every moment, but yet because of that, we're living. We're living the best life that we could. He says, beaten and yet not killed, which he experienced multiple times. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know what? I was, I was talking to Heidi in the kitchen this morning, and I was kind of thinking about today and whatnot. And there's a crazy thing that happens in a person's life when they move from uh, law to love. When, they move, when their relationship with God moves away from laws that don't really exist and moves to, I just love Jesus. And the, 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 the thing that occurs, the, 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 um, the outlook that happens is that you no longer look at people anymore with judgment. You look on them with sorrow. You know? You can look at uh, people doing crazy things, degenerate things, and it's fine. You say, I wish that wasn't going on, and I wish the children were watching it. But you know what? I feel sorry for this person because they're acting out in a way that's wicked and it's destroying them and it's destroying everyone around them and it's actually netting for them judgment from God because God is just. 
And I'm sorry that they're doing that. I wish they weren't doing it. I'm sorry that they are. And he says that we're sorrowful. The ministry will bring you sorrow. If you're serving Jesus, it will bring you sorrow. Because there's a lot of people that aren't, and they celebrate it, and they blame you for it. And, that, and that's okay. Because we rejoice, because we know that God's kingdom is growing. He's doing great things, right? He goes on there, and he says, um, he says, we're poor, yet we're making many rich, right? Paul had next to nothing. But what he was sharing with people was significantly more. He goes, he expands on that. He says, having nothing, yet possessing everything. You know, when Paul writes to, or uh, when John, uh, no, Paul, he writes and he, and he says, I think it's either Titus or Timothy, but he says, when he comes to visit, please tell him to bring my cloak because it's cold. I think about that. I just want, I, I just would really like to have a coat if I could. Because evidently it gets cold in the Mediterranean. I find that hard to believe, but we'll just go for it because it's in the Bible. But he says there, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Right? Again, a, com- a, a, a difference between the temporal and the eternal. Verse 11. And this is so personal. It's so wonderful. May this be our attitude to everyone who refuses us. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. May we never open our mouths without first opening our hearts. And I don't mean that in like some sort of like hallmark type of way. I mean, like, literally, may we look at human beings and keep our mouths shut and tell our hearts, our, our soul, our inner being, says, I want the best for you. Because when we speak out of another motivation, it's death-bringing. We have to be so careful of our own hearts. And he, says, we're our, he says, we've opened our hearts wide to you. We love you. We care about you. Then in verse 12, he says, we are not withholding our affection from you. He's not manipulating them. He's not being passive-aggressive with them. He's, not, he's just saying, look, we're just, we love you. Everything we're saying is because we love you. We care about you. And then he goes on, he says, he says but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. And we'll close here. And Paul, does, he's, he's making this plea to them. Another place, another translation says, we haven't limited your affections. You've limited your own affections. In other words, Paul is writing to them and he's saying, look, my words and the words that God has for you, they're not limiting to you. They're life broadening. They're a, a huge horizon to you. Saying no to certain things in your life is not limiting. It's not destructive. It's life giving. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, we have not tried to be minimal to you. Our hearts are open to you. We love you. We have these things that God has for you that we want to tell you about. He said, but you are limiting yourself because of your lusts and what you're insisting on. Your teachers that you're listening to that are bringing you into a, uh, to chains of law, whether it be Jewish law or new law. And he's just saying, I'm asking you like a child, as my child, open up your heart again to me, is what Paul is saying. And if we go back and we read everything that he's asking for, what is he asking them to open their heart to? To the grace of God. Right? The grace of God. To God's goodness. To God's call. To God's ministry that will only bring life. And so the call goes out to us also at 12-12. This might be a record. We'll say it was the Holy Spirit and the, the kitchen need more time. You know, I'm just, just going to go home believing that. You guys are good folks. I appreciate your tolerance. But uh, we do have food, and so we'll pray. And I want to encourage you, if you feel stuck in your sin, or if you've never received Christ, we'd love to talk to you. love to pray with you. No condemnation, just life. Father, thank you for your word. 
and your great grace, your great kindness, your great mercy. Thank you for the promises and the purpose that we have in you. Lord, we're humbled and we're excited. And man, you've been very good to us. Thanks for food and fellowship and opportunity to hang out. We pray for a great time in your presence as we fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.